0: to Twin Cities Theater Chat. This podcast is created by members of the Twin Cities Theater Bloggers to share our love of theater, promote theater going, and support our theater community. My name is Carol Jackson, and I write for Minnesota Theater Love. On this episode of Twin Cities Theater Chat, Jill Schaefer of Cherry and Spoon and I have the pleasure of speaking with Peter Rothstein, longtime and beloved artistic director of Theater Latte Da. He was an absolute pleasure to chat with, so enjoy.
1: So Peter, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Uh, My first question is about your upcoming show, Next to Normal, which begins performances on June 7th and runs through July 16th. So for those who don't know, Next to Normal premiered on Broadway in 2009. It won three Tony Awards and the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, one of only 10 musicals to win that Um, And since that time, we've seen, to my count, four local productions. So my first question is, why did you choose to do Next to Normal now in 2023? And what might it say differently to a 2023 audience than 14 years ago? And is there anything new that you hope to bring to it?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I I actually saw Next to Normal when it was in previews off-Broadway. Uh, and they made a lot of changes uh, uh, before they brought it into brought it uh, back into New York and onto Broadway. it went out of town to arena stage. They rewrote something like 30 some pieces of music uh, and and so it had a long development like develop, developmental life. Uh, but I was taken with it when I saw it off Broadway, uh, because I felt like, it was exploring terrain that musical theater doesn't traditionally traverse. And, uh, you know, it deals with really serious, challenging issues of bipolar disorder and depression and family dysfunction and infant mortality. And and, uh, I felt like it handled those subject matters with incredible nuance and sophistication. But I was so taken with the score and not just that it was great music, that I loved the music, but I was so uh, drawn to the emotional integrity of the score that it could that it could address a really complex emotional landscape and capture it uh, with such musical kind of integrity. Uh, I was so taken with that. So I wanted to do it for a long time, and then Jack Ruler at Mixed Blood got it really quickly. I was like, "How did you get it so <laughs> so quickly?" Uh, Jack had a, a way of doing that, actually. He was really great at finding exciting work and found a way to uh, be the first to bring it into Minneapolis. But um, so I kept waiting for enough time to go by because uh, that was a really strong production. And then Yellow Tree announced they were doing it and that was a really strong production. And uh, So I'd, I've seen it now a number of times. I've seen those two local productions. I saw it off-Broadway, on-Broadway. I also saw a production in Mexico City a handful of years ago in Spanish and uh, in another really different uh, but really strong production. Um, so much of the work at La Teda has been to reimagine work from the canon. And while I I hope uh, we'll bring something new to this production, uh, the design, I think, is unlike those, so it certainly echoes the original design. Um, I'm, I'm less driven to reimagine this work than I am to um, to do the work as authentically responsibly as possible Um, and we've been working with a mental health consultant Michelle Sherman who's been a fantastic advisor on this project she spent a lot of time with the cast and she's brought in a variety of other consultants for us an incredible psychologist who specializes in family loss and childhood loss and in, inside families. Uh, we've met with a woman who's been living with bipolar disorder for 39 years. And is really involved with NAMI, both locally and nationally. Um, and, and that's led to the company and cast exploring their own issues of, of loss and mental health. So um uh, I'm, it's less about a concept that I'm bringing to it than it is trying to honor these serious topics that this musical in particular has uh, has been willing to address that the musical theater often doesn't.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. I saw a preview of it on Broadway and was just blown away. So yeah, yeah I'm excited to see it again. Um, my next question is about your theater company, Theater Da, which you founded with Denise Prozek 25 years ago. So can you talk to us a little bit about the experience of starting a theater company? And when you started, did you ever imagine that 25 years ago, you know, Theater La Tida would own its own space, have a strong donor subscription base, have these long runs, sell out shows, tour the, com- the country. Did you ever, did you envision that when you started the company 25 years ago?
2: Absolutely not. <laughs> to be honest, we really, uh, we really were not looking to even found a company at first. Uh, a, a good friend of ours, Angie Dreyhaus, was a company member at Children's Theatre Company. And, and Denise and I had gone to high school together, but we hadn't worked together since high school. But we were both friends with Angie, and she said, why don't we put a cabaret together in the, a black box at Children's Theatre Company? It's, that space doesn't exist anymore. But um, she just said there wasn't opportunities for actors in town to do more adventurous musical theatre because the landscape here was so different 30 years ago uh, when it came to musicals. We've had, a obviously, a robust uh, theater community for decades, but the Guthrie was not doing musicals regularly. Park Square, I don't think, had ever done a musical. The Jungle had never done a musical. Uh, Mixed Blood had done a few musical reviews, but musicals were not uh, really a part of of regular programming across the professional theater community here. So we realized, well, there's a niche here for both artists and for audiences. But it was really initially driven by artists wanting to do more adventurous musical theater. So, So we just started creating cabarets, first at Children's Theater Company. Around that time, Bryant Lake Bowl was just opening, and they knew about this cabaret we had done at CTC and said, why don't you put it up here. And so we, we were regulars in the early days of Brant Lake Bowl. And for about three years, we just produced independently. We just produced mainly cabarets that we did a production of falsettos, production of songs for a new world. Uh, and I think all those happened before we incorporated and formed a, a nonprofit. But when we built that nonprofit at our very first board retreat, we created our mission statement. And that mission has not really changed. Uh, in 25 years. But I had no idea how how much we would exercise that mission and really scratch the boundaries of that mission to really explore the art form. And I had no idea at that point that we would venture into opera, that we would venture into dance-driven work, that we would take a play and infuse it with music, and that we would commission a lot of musicals and musicals of, of you know, a pretty substantial size. Um, and, uh, but really the the mission of the organization has not changed since we created it initially 25 years ago.
0: Peter, it's fascinating to think about that 25 years ago, Mixed Blood wasn't doing musicals and the Guthrie wasn't doing musicals. That's just, I, I'd love to talk about that for maybe two hours, you know, like yeah. what has changed? Um, yeah. But thinking about your legacy at at Theater La TeDa, how does it feel to be leaving this this organization that you co-founded?
2: I guess because I'm in the middle of it, I can't really articulate entirely um, what it feels like. I, um, but I, of course, it's bittersweet, and um, and I was not looking for a new job. I wasn't looking to leave this community. Um, in fact, I'm the headhunter for this job at oslo rep first contacted me i think my initial response was no thank you but um what we create is temporal it only lives in time and space and so i'm really wired that way and i'm i'm proud of what we've accomplished and i'm excited for La Teda to continue to employ artists and to stretch the boundaries of musical storytelling but i'm not looking to um institutionalize it in a way or the word legacy is complicated for me because because um, if it's not living and breathing and evolving then it's not really theater mm. and so it, it happens in the moment and um, I will certainly miss these incredible collaborators and miss these loyal audiences uh, without question um, but as far as the legacy of it um, I'm excited for someone else to bring new ideas new aesthetics new stories uh, to the table and And really over the last few years, um, we've diversified our voices more and more, and we've welcomed many more directors into into the circle in, in both main stage productions as well as directors who are facilitating the development of new work. And so the organization has actually become much more pluralistic. Um, in its artistic voices in the last years um, than it certainly was for for the majority of those early years when it was really Denise and I um, at the helm of each production.
0: Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Oslo Rep and what um, drew you to go there?
2: I've been working with Oslo Rep for about the last six years, I think. Um, My first experience was a production of Ragtime that began at Theatre La Teda and then moved to the Fifth Avenue in Seattle. And Michael Edwards, who's the producing artistic director currently at Oslo Rep had called me to have a conversation about about this Ragtime. And Frank Galati, who was the original director of Ragtime and uh, the developmental director and really uh, one of the driving forces behind the creation of the musical lived in Sarasota. Frank just passed away a few months ago, sadly um but frank was an artistic associate at the oslo and michael said i'd love to learn about this ragtime but really i mean that original production had 58 people you're doing it with 13 people and how does that work and and the show has such kind of it's it's grand it's endemic, and how are you how are you accomplishing that and what was scheduled to be a 15 minute phone call ended up being about an hour and 45 minutes um and michael and i had such a shared vocabulary shared passions uh around not just ragtime but about uh, around the American theater and the musical in particular and so when I first arrived in Sarasota uh I felt like it was a place really special um there was an instant simpatico in uh creatively uh I was so impressed with the with the shops the level of craft happening in the scene shop and the costume shop and the prop shop and and electrics um, and I never heard no, and not because it was carte blanche or that they um, that there wasn't a budget that needed to be um, honored, but that there was always a spirit of creativity and that uh, we can accomplish this. And so I just I had a remarkable experience. And it was also a stressful experience because opening night in the audience would be Frank Galati, mm-hmm. uh, as well as... Uh, Stephen Flaherty, uh, the composer, of Ragtime, as well as Terrence McNally, who wrote the book for Ragtime. So um, there was a certain level of uh, of stress uh, uh, having those creators uh, in the room to see this pretty radically reimagined production. Uh, but that led to amazing friendships uh, with with Frank and and to collaborating with Terrence McNally on his last play. and And so I think because of that um because of that experience it became immediately a a, an artistic home and a place that became very dear to my heart and then throughout the uh interview process i just felt more and more like there was a simpatico here and where the board and the staff saw the organization growing its next chapter that perhaps i was a fit and so i'm 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 thrilled to uh be a part of its uh, a part of its next chapter
1: So you talked about this a little bit already, but as someone who's worked in theater for 25 plus years, what are some of the changes that you've seen in the local theater scene, in the national theater scene, and how have you changed as a theater maker in that time?
2: You're making me work this morning, Jill and Carol. Um, These are great questions. There's been such tremendous change. Um, You know, I moved to Minneapolis after graduate school to assist Garland Wright, who was running the Guthrie Theatre at the time. And I I should amend what I said before, it's not that the Guthrie had never done a musical because Garland did brilliant productions of Guys and Dolls, Anything Goes, Candide. Uh, But I think he did three, maybe four Babes in Arms uh, in his total tenure at the Guthrie, so it certainly wasn't part of their regular programming. But I, um, so I moved here to assist Garland, who was an extraordinary, artist and a singular vision as a director and, and June Moon was um, creating groundbreaking work. So I came to Minneapolis at a time of such extraordinary creativity and those two organizations were at the forefront of theatrical uh, invention, I think. And, and both of those institutions had a profound impact on my aesthetic and the way I look at, uh, at creating live theater. Um, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, most regional theaters were still um, prioritizing the European canon in their programming. Importance of Being Earnest was still the most performed play in America, even though it wasn't an American play. For years and years, Importance of Being Earnest was the most performed play. Uh, And I think we've seen a major shift in this country um, away from the European canon into asking what is the American canon? And what are we doing to create the American canon? So I think regional theaters um, have shifted to the American classics, but also shifted to Newark development and supporting living writers. Um, I personally think it's a responsibility of the regional theater to support living writers. Um, For generations, really, we look to New York to carry that, to do that lift. And most of the work was growing out of the commercial theater, not the nonprofit theater. And I think we've seen a shift in that now, uh, which has led to more partnerships between nonprofit and for-profit theater. Uh, And I think it is our responsibility as leaders in the regional theater movement to commission writers, um, to create artistic homes, not only for actors, certainly resident acting companies were uh, 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 part of the spine of the American regional theater movement, but resident writers were not. And, um, and so I think that's a shift for the better. Certainly we've seen a shift in, um, in the diversity of stories and the diversity of voices inside the American theater. We still have a long way to go, I think to have uh, equitable representation. And I think we've seen a shift in how we, uh, the agreement between the audience and the actor and with much more immersive theater, much more event-based theater, um, we've shifted away a bit from that European frame um, where we all face one direction um, and all are led to taking the the same story um, with one universal response. And I think we've we've hopefully um, opened it up to say, ah, women might hear this story differently than men. Um, uh, This generation might hear, an older generation might hear this story differently than a younger generation. A person of color might take in the story differently than a white person. Um, And how do we create a theater that that is actually open to a pluralistic response from an audience, uh, not only open to it, but how do we actually encourage that? And uh, and that's really exciting. Um, so I think we're, we're going to see a lot more immersive, event-based theater, and a much greater, perhaps, um, fusion of other art forms. I think probably about 20 years ago, we were starting to see a resurgence in audiences going to the opera in this country. And I think uh, MTV was actually a huge part of that, that um, it made a whole new generation of musical storytelling audiences um, more adventurous. And that in a three-minute music video, you can go from watching a band in a concert to seeing them in the recording studio, to see the lead singer driving down the road in a pickup truck, to someone riding a Ferris wheel back into the music studio all within three minutes that you're willing to uh, shift from kind of a linear narrative to a performative narrative. And so I've made for, I think, much more adventurous and much more audiences being much more willing, especially in the music theater to, uh, to go on a variety of different rides. And it really kind of blew a lot of that open for us and uh, perhaps because I'm uh, the MTV generation, but I actually think MTV did a lot to build um, much more sophisticated musical theater audiences. And, and that was a shift that, you know, that's been happening over the last few decades.
0: Um, theater La Teda has brought us several regional premieres, um, Chicago and Once. Uh, to name only a few. Um, is there anything playing on Broadway right now or say in the last five years that you are just itching to direct or itching to to produce?
2: Oh, certainly. Um, the, the My bucket list, uh, I keep thinking, oh, I'm getting to the end of my bucket list. And then, of course, there's that next show that I'm dying to do. Yeah, there's there's still a lot on my bucket list I'm excited to do uh come from away recently closed on broadway but that's a bucket list show actually when theater latte da started the next festival our, our new works festival um come from away was going to be in the very first year of the festival um and i had a friend of mine had said hey there's this piece it does not have an artistic home yet but it's going to be really special and and i was blown away by it and um and that ended up not happening sadly um because the the couple who wrote it they were having a a, a baby just at that time and couldn't travel and whatnot but um so I've been in love with come from away for many many years and I would love to direct that show at, at some point um I'm going to New York next next month to see a host of new things that are opening um but I think there's uh we're seeing much more, you know, we're seeing a lot of adventurous things happen coming out of Broadway right now. And, um, uh, but Come From Away would be at the top of my list for recent commercial hits.
1: Uh, so you have helped to create a couple of shows. Of course, All Is Calm, which runs almost annually, toured nationally, played off Broadway. Um, another one was *Steerage Song. I don't know if you participated in creating Christmas at the Local last last Christmas. Is that something you want to continue to do to develop new work as a as more of a creator playwright or do you see yourself just sort of fostering other playwrights?
2: Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, I, I love that generative process and I love to be a, a part of the creation of a new work from the beginning, from the place of an idea. Um, I was definitely a part of that with Christmas at the local uh, though I don't you know that's not my voice um, in the creation of that piece certainly I was curating it and 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 driving that development process along with Alyssa Adams, our director of New work uh I I would love to continue to find um, projects that I would be a a creative voice on um and not just the developmental director on those projects that comes. Uh, slow to me uh, and, um, and so I don't uh, know how often I will find the time to, um, to create work from the ground up, um, like in All is Calm. And I think my greatest strength is really um, is helping foster from a directorial perspective that, that dramaturgical um, work that happens as a director when you're creating a new musical or a new play. Um, so I think I'll end up doing much more of that but I, one thing we did learn in the evolution of our new works program at Latte Da is at first we started with the Next Festival where we were building relationships with with agents um, and writers and finding out what work out there was interesting and and might need an artistic home. Uh, but we were a bit reactionary, and what we realized after the first few years is we really needed to be commissioning writers where we were bringing ideas uh, forward and then building a team around that idea or going to a writer we were really excited about and saying, what ideas have you not found space for? For um, And could we commission you? Could we pay you to make time in your schedule to write that piece? Um, so we became much more a part of the creative process really from the beginning rather than uh, just curating a festival of, of new work that was floating around out there. And that that's really exciting to me. And um, we have a team of writers in town this week, um, workshopping a new idea as part of our Next Gen Commission. And uh, I'm not a part of that um, creative team, um, but definitely was a part of selecting that team and meeting with that team on what the the source material for this musical would be. Um, And that's, that's really thrilling work.
0: Peter, I have a question from one of our bloggers, Alex from One Fan Show. And he says, "As an audience member, I'm used to theater La Teda trying out new ideas with familiar shows and having them work flawlessly. But what do you feel is the biggest risk you took with a show, you know, that people know? Um, does any moment stick out where you thought, "Oh, I don't know how people are going to respond to this?
2: <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I think I think when we reimagine musicals, it's much uh, trickier territory than than reimagining a play because those initial productions of the musical tend to um, be embedded in people's minds um, because they tend to live a lot longer on Broadway um, because um, those initial productions, because the musical theater is such an amalgamation of all these different art forms coming together that it's hard to actually separate the script from the production. So it's hard for us to imagine a chorus line without gold tails and top hats. Um even though that's not necessarily the writers bringing that forward that was the initial costume designer bringing that idea forward, right? Can we imagine Phantom without a chandelier collapsing to the stage? And so when you set out to reimagine a musical, um you you have to navigate that for an audience what what is intrinsic for them in this experience and uh, but nine times out of ten, for me, it's really um, actually ten times out of ten. Uh, the story has to be the driver, and that you ha- you have to feel like the it's not about the theatrical event; it's about the story being told. And and when you unlock what's at the heart of the story, then is there a way to reimagine it? That's that's not deconstructing the story; that's actually honoring the story. And when I speak with younger emerging directors, I often say that 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 my work, I wouldn't call my work deconstructing the work. Um it actually I um I hope to honor uh the intent of that work. And if a play doesn't say what you want it to say, then that's not the play for you to direct. Then you need to write your own play or find a different play. But to try to infuse a message other than something that you're finding intrinsic inside that story. Um, and then I often say to my designers, if these characters are left to their own devices, what tools would they have to tell this story? And sometimes I get frustrated seeing work um, on Broadway because I feel like they brought all the same toys to the party. Um, we're gonna have thousands of moving lights. We're gonna have automated scenery. We're going to, and it doesn't matter. Uh, I'd seen uh, w- the original uh, cast of Wicked and the original production of Color Purple in the same day on Broadway. You can't imagine two different stories, but it felt like the tools of the story were exactly the same. And so um, as a way to try to, again, honor the integrity of the story, if, I, if the characters are left to their own devices, what tools do they have to tell the story? And that's really been a driver around how we re reimagined, reimagined work. I think, and I guess because it's top of mind because I, I just opened a production of it um, down at the Oslo, but in Resetting Man of La Mancha in a modern day immigration deportation center, um, I felt like it was a good idea, the right idea, um, but that was a moment where I thought, oh, is an audience going to ever go on that journey? Um, because I haven't succeeded if you're just watching the direction at all times. I haven't succeeded if you've not immersed yourself and entered into that story. Um, as much as I uh, like to have moments where you're like, oh, that's good direction. Oh, that's a good transition. Um, the ultimate goal needs to be um, have people entered into the story and are they on the character's journey, not on my journey. and um, And so because... Man of La Mancha has lived in dominant culture for a long time, and because we have such iconic images of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, um, what are how far is an audience willing to depart um, to see that story in a new way? But I did believe um, that the concept um, honored um, honored that original, uh, and I love research, and so in the case of La Mancha had done as much research as possible by Dale Wasserman, who wrote the, the play that became the musical. You know, he had said, Oh, I wish we had done this in the Broadway version. He said, Oh, I felt like the horses got too Disney. Um, the horses had too much play. And I thought, well, "Great, right, I can reimagine the horses differently then. Um, he wrote extensively about the abduction and the rape sequence, feeling like it was actually doing the opposite of what he wanted to do that at some point, um, it felt gratuitous, or it felt um, um, disrespectful to the actresses having playing Aldanza. And I thought, great, we can reimagine that then. So um, again, not to um, to intentionally depart from the original, but to say, what were the impulses of that original creative team? What are those impulses in the story? And is there a way um, with with my aesthetic, with the team's modern sensibilities, to honor? um to honor that story uh in, in a new vocabulary
0: just a quick mention to say that i was browsing through your portfolio on your website and i was just so stunned by how many absolutely amazing shows you've created and directed in the twin cities and um we're really we're really going to miss you and super excited for your next journey and the excitement of moving on to something new and exciting um but it's even if you don't say it it's still quite a legacy here so thank you so much for all your work thanks Carol. And,
1: and you can still come back and guest direct a show every now and then right You're still going to come visit us occasionally?
2: You'll have to talk to my new boss at Latte Dodds. (laughs) They'll have me back.
1: (laughs) Or maybe we'll come visit you. Twin Cities Theater Bloggers Florida trip.
2: That sounds good. Come in January. Come in February.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, can you do your shows like in the coldest winter months, please? Thank you. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Peter. We really appreciate your time. Thank
2: you. Appreciate
0: it. We'd like to thank Peter Rothstein for joining us on Twin Cities Theater Chat. Next to Normal at Theater La Teda runs from June 7th to July 16th. While you're at their website buying tickets for the show, check out their 2023 24 season, which was just announced and looks amazing. See you next time, and hey, go see a show!